Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Hello, dear listeners, and come join us for a very special Behind the White Scarves, because it is the first one Toby and I ever did. Longtime fans might be very well aware of this, but in the before times of 2019, Alex asked us to participate in the special extras being put out after the final release of the Steamheart audio drama. At this time, I had mostly just been a very vocal supporter of Alex's through Patreon messages and Twitter. Though the School of Movies Discord was a thing at that point, and I was growingly active there. I had not, however, made the acquaintance of the not-yet-married and not-yet-PhD'd Toby Jungius, who had been a fan longer than I and had a long history of promoting New Century on his Tumblr page, back when Tumblr was still a thing. Although thinking about it, it sounds like Tumblr might have made a resurgence? Question mark? And Twitter, meanwhile, is on its last legs, now called X, after being bought by a rich man-child that I think back in 2019 we all still thought was cool because he seemed to be a geek billionaire. More fools us. All throughout Phase 1, Alex had taken the lead in creating extras in the wake of every new novel-slash-audio drama being put out. At the very beginning of this recording, he will in fact make reference to a Steamheart Roundtable, wherein he would sit down and discuss the book with the cast members. Those old roundtables are now gone. Not because they were bad, but because when Toby and I managed to succeed at being very good in our through-the-wind-door analyses, Alex made the choice to loose the reins and let us take over behind the white scarves. A testament, I suppose, to the fact that we did shockingly well on our first outing, and by the time we did the Uncivil Outlaw interviews, we were a well-oiled machine. More significantly, Alex was worried that if he kept doing the extras, that it would step on the interpretations of fans by making his commentary the word of God, as they say in TV tropes. I would go on to add, as I have many times, that just because we have a podcast doesn't make our interpretations any better, and I'm hoping to get some more diversity of thought on board starting in 2024, bringing more fans on in various White Scarves team-up episodes. On searching for this interview, as I was gearing up to write the outline for our final episodes on the Steamheart retrospective, I suddenly discovered that I couldn't easily find it on Patreon or on the New Century podcast feed. Alex was kind enough to provide me the original files, but also suggested that as the Guardians of the Windor, we should release it on our own feed. And while I could have done exactly that, and nothing more, as I listened back to our old voices through creaky, imperfect computer mics, I felt like there was potentially more here. More than just information to be mined for a future show, and a look back on a different time. So like Alex, I decided to take this old beta of Through the Windor and add some relevant bonus commentary here and there, with four years of new experiences under my belt regarding this beloved IP. Be warned, 
When we first did this interview, we were asking questions about all New Century books up till that point, which means there is going to be discussion on Princess Thieves and its characters. If you have only been following along with the retrospective, you might want to jump out and listen later, since we have not covered Princess Thieves yet. But otherwise, this should be an exciting look back on questions you might not have heard answers to, or thought to ask. So let me take us back. Back to a simpler time, before outlaws, maidens, castles, and all the rest. Welcome back to Behind the White Scarves, the Steamheart Sessions. After that round table with the cast, Sharon and I felt like there was more ground to be covered, more depths we could go to. So this time I brought in two avid lovers of New Century, Greg Downing and Toby Jungius, and I asked them to come up with some searching questions. So hello, Greg. Hello. And hello, Toby. Hi there. And these two went away and did some digging and some conferring, and they sent me the finalized questions to check over, but I have adjusted nothing, and this is all from them. So I guess just fire away when ready, and this covers the whole gamut of uh, phase one, and from the sounds of it, gets quite meta as well, and it goes like way into the <laughs> writing. So uh, like spoilers, I suppose, for everything. Um, and uh, that if you haven't heard all of phase one up to date, you've got some listening to some great stuff folks but uh yeah uh, if any questions uh, uh, crop up don't hesitate to ask if they're off the original ones and uh, i reckon we're in for a good show on this one i'd agree excellent okay uh greg do you want to go first uh, i suppose I'll, I'll i'll be happy to once again i apologize for how grading my vocal track specifically is the questions on the list are in a particular order obviously things make deviate slightly from it depending on where we go maybe certain questions will be better following others but i see no reason not to start with the top of the list one of the things mentioned in the round table uh in in the earlier steamheart round table was how phase one began in the obama administration but the rise of trump as well as brexit and its associated politicians and plenty of other stuff around the globe set things in an angrier direction uh, could you be more specific on how this shaped the story as you were writing it, and at one point these changes in tone and content began? Okay. Originally, I mean, this thing has been being written for, for between 2001 and like 2013. It was being shaped into the new century that it became in the Cartographer's Handbook. And it went through iteration after iteration. And a lot of it <clears throat> around about the middle section was inspired by Firefly. And just as time went on, I began to think hard about like, cause this was during the Obama administration. I was going, you know, Firefly's really down on the idea of unity and it's really pro independence. And if I was going to move things forward, you know, cause we've always been like wanting more firefly, but I, I feel like if they ever were going to do more, they would have to challenge that as an ideal, like just in terms of what the hell has happened in the past few years. And while the initial story began as very, very anti-corporation, I ended up, pushing it in a far more pro-globalization direction. 
I did this by basically killing the idea of corporations and then having them kind of beginning to resurface in the midst of the beginnings of globalization. Because we've seen a million dark futures where corporations got too corporation-y to the point where a lot of people don't really get that the whole point of cyberpunk is to rebel against that. So I figured I'd play with the formula a little. So the initial premise for the Cartographer's Handbook was, what if the government were actually benevolent for a change? (laughs) Because there's so many dystopias where the government is out to completely screw everyone and just advance themselves on a personal basis. So I was like, right, so what if we made it more like the West Wing and they're just struggling to keep things together? It's a running joke that I can't stop mentioning the West Wing in relation to New Century, as well as other media. But as Alex here mentions, that was always part of the text. So he was putting pennies in jars before I was. One could even say he was putting many different coins in many different boxes. I mean, jars. And, uh, you know, I I imagine what if uh, Obama right now was like a serious shit happened and he was the one who was having to pull everyone together. So there's a lot of... Uh, you know, Obama, but in a, a sort of a darkened, angry fashion in Thomas. And I looked at the anti-Obama sentiment and thought, what if he really was as forceful as the people who hated and still hate him said he was? Greatest leader in my lifetime, hands down. But in doing so, in being that great, he angered up this really toxic opposition. And so, to, you know, I planned out the first five books of uh, New Century. It was originally just going to be Steamheart. I've said this one before. Cartographers, Secret Rooms, Tiger's Eye, Arlington, Steamheart. So Princess Thieves, Christmas Thieves, and Let Them Go all came after this initial plan, which is why they all much more heavily involved Theo, who joined way later in the game. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd, plan- I'd mapped all this out, and it was all about this benevolent government. Just trying to humanize the people trying to, to, to hold uh, the America together. And then 2016 comes along and the pendulum swings back from what Obama brought in to uh, a sort of an anti-Obama, we want to just tear all this shit down uh, sensibility. And uh, that, that, by the way, that wasn't what was happening in England. We've been f- sitting on this festering resentment and xenophobia of Europe for decades since before Sharon and I were born. So this was just that finally coming to a head and mm. you know, bigotry and, and, and being able to pull the wool over people's eyes just for the right amount, just at the point when democracy was at its most fragile, allowed... It wasn't just such a, like, like a, like a horrible vote for just let's, let's foolishly pull out of this thing that works in favor of we don't have a plan. It, it was that that emboldened the worst people. That was the, the worst thing about Trump getting in and Brexit uh, being given a yay by just these couple of percents. What this really came down to was suddenly the worst aspects of humanity were emboldened. We got this spike in, not so much in racism, but in bigotry from people who felt like they could now get away with it. Mm. And I couldn't then look at the people in charge in New Century as, well, this is going to just carry on as it is. And I think the the administration that uh, the, the Grant administration was always going to be fragile and in flux, and because of the way America works, it was always going to go back in a different direction. 
well, no spoilers for what's happening in phase two, but it's, it's not going to be peaches and cream, uh, especially mm-hmm. after what we've endured for the past few years. But I didn't just want to shove a Trump analog like Van Tassel into the White House and start writing that America, because by the time I was done with the book, he could have been impeached and out. It had to be dealing more with the ongoing situation, the dichotomy of America's heart, which is going to last and last. And so, of course, by the end of it, they have the division, uh, The a new American civil war comes yeah. into play to reflect that. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 we might not have gone to another American civil war if... Uh, the, if either, if the Democrats had won, uh, in 2016, or if someone like Jeb Bush had won, you know, just someone who would be like, right, so the next, uh, port of call would be another war in the Gulf for my daddy's oil interests mm-hmm. and, you know, for Halliburton and to make sure that we're still making weapons, but basically not stoking the fires of absolute race hatred and locking children in cages. Not atrocity level stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think if it, if we'd ended up with people in charge and, and you're absolutely right about things in Britain not just being about what happened in 2016, I think honestly we'd been on a fairly steady downward trajectory since about 2010. Um, well, Nigel Farage has been gainfully employed for many years. Yeah, so exactly. There's a need for him, this giant racist bullfrog. Yeah. That, that people had been uh, becoming frustrated and feeling like there was we, we had the potential there for great change and progression, and the great change and progression that we wanted didn't happen. But we had at least kind of reached a, a sort of a plateau mm. of things moving forwards. And then instead of getting new leaders and uh, a new political direction that would at least sustain that plateau and give us a, a sort of a level ground that we could then build the next step on, which is what you want, mm. really, if you're into progressiveness and, and wanting things to move forward and improve. Instead, what we got was people in charge who actively wanted to tear things down. Yeah. Uh, and systems which have been in place for a long time and actually did kind of work. Mm. If you go back to the cartographer's handbook, there was an actual attempt to try to humanise people on the Confederate side in mm. the Civil War. By the time I was riding uh, Steamheart and uh, the, the early section where you first meet young Abigail uh, that ended up getting moved to the beginning of Secret Rooms where she says to her father, who was a Confederate soldier... See, the Confederacy pretty much owned my body when they sent it to war. That ain't the same. They conscripted you. <sighs> yep. But I would have fought for our side anyway. Yeah, for the right for slaveholders to carry on owning the lives and bodies of blacks. Hmm. I'm sorry. You know that wasn't why I fought. Yeah. I fought against Yankee oppression. I fought for the freedom of the South. Folks who wanted to control us. But you also fought on behalf of people who was doing oppression of their own. Those who would keep men from being free. I... I just... I don't understand it anymore, Daddy. I thought I did, but I don't. When I was a kid, I looked at what you did and I thought, well, this has got to be kind of a... A Shades of Grey situation, but I'm just... I'm finding out more and more of this shit and it's just baffling me. What the hell? That was me 
readjusting that to, okay, I, I am no longer going to try to find the shades of grey. Because like, now we're, you know, by that point we were entering into a much more black and white world where the evil was much more pronounced evil. It, it, and, and the idea of, well, no, 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 hear them out became straight up dangerous. Like, give Nazis a platform. Let's see what they have to say. Let's negotiate with them. That's what we do. We're fine liberal. folks on both sides. Very <laughs> fine people. Uh, so mm. uh, it, it it's become more polarized. And while I can't and won't equate the Confederacy with Nazism, there are Nazis today that use the Confederacy. And seemingly the ordinary people who don't hold to these views, their main beef is... I don't like being told what to do. They like being told they're right by manipulative leaders. But the reason that Green Hollow were as terrible and nonsensical as they were was because at the core of part of America's desperation to be free requires it to be non-governed. And in a realistic modern world, you can do that. You can take yourself out of the way and buy some land and just live on it. But in the grand scheme to move the human race forward, that's not going to work long term. So I think a major key change for the new century was that I originally started out attempting to be bipartisan the way that the West Wing, a staunchly liberal show, presents sympathetic Republicans like Ainsley and Vinnick. But as time's gone by, I've become less interested in both sides. I, of course, don't want to step on Alex's words here, but I would add that in hindsight, the West Wing is more of a center-left show and one that got more centrist the moment Sorkin left. Which may be part of the reason why Alex dislikes later seasons. As much as I appreciate Ainsley and Vinnick, even they have boneheaded arguments that don't land in 2024. Alex and I, and most of our community, have gotten only more left-wing as a result of the last eight-plus years, and the West Wing no longer satisfies like it once did. It's part of the reason why Alex has gone back and made changes even above and beyond the ones he added to Secret Room's Definitive Edition, as our understanding of civil rights and other related issues has improved. I would genuinely like to progress to a time of moderation, when the Republican Party were not corrupt caricature cartoons, and actually did have the people's interests at heart. While I want to craft a world where people... I can always give people the benefit of the doubt of being people deep down. There's been so much evil shit coming to mm. the surface that I, I was always aware of before. But just, like I say, the whole emboldened thing, the whole feeling like there was no repercussions for this and we can now crawl out from under these rocks. Mm. Uh, you know, Racism didn't just suddenly happen in America. It's been there since day one. It's mm. just that we went through a period of, okay, guys, this isn't cool anymore. And they were like, well, I guess you can't say anything these days. And it turned into a grumble. But underneath that, it just seethed. And I don't want to make books that only work now. I want to make work that can help people five decades from now, a hundred years from now, that still applies. And there will always be certain constants and one of the things I'm going to be doing as we move forwards is uh, I've got a whole book in mind where it's much more about young people trying to push progress forwards and find themselves clashing with those who want to uphold tradition, whose floor is not seeing that it needs to be reevaluated. 
And uh, why I, do we need to change anything? It's fine for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just just watching these kids who have shown more backbone than any adult leader of the UK in my life. I'm hoping that Miguel will be the leader of this uh, group of young people, but uh, no spoilers. We'll we'll see. So in a very, very long roundabout way, shit changed. I have to change with it, but I can't change to just focus on what's happening now, because by the time I'm done writing a book about what's happening now, it was then. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) So uh, next question. Okay. Alex, you've said in the past that you try to make each instalment of New Century work, whether they're being enjoyed by a long-time fan or as a listener's first experience with the series. How did you handle this when undertaking Steamheart, a narrative which represented the culmination of Phase 1? <laughs> with difficulty. Um, <laughs> I think Steamheart's the first one that um, it doesn't necessarily not work on its own, but there's more taking stuff on board one of the reasons that it went on hold quite literally for yeah one of the reasons that it went on hold for for such a long time was that i was writing all of this stuff that was just like previously on steamheart previously on tiger's eye previously on secret rooms and i wrote these whole nine extra chapters for um to establish who abigail and james were as kids that would then reflect on who they were as adults which just ended up making the whole thing too flabby we weren't starting i think maybe one of the weakest episodes or or chapters in all of Steamheart is the one where Miguel recaps what happened in Tiger's Eye. It's a lovely chapter on its own, but if you've read or heard Tiger's Eye recently, it's like, yes, 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 we know this. This is the adventure from Miguel's point of view, but you've already done this once already in Tiger's Eye. You go from Haral's point of view to Miguel's point of view, and he goes back through the adventure. Effectively, this is just going over the old ground again. In a filmic equivalent or a TV equivalent, this would just be boom, 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 flash, 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 which is very difficult to establish if it's going to be entirely self-contained in this one book. So I had to lay down who these people were because they don't have that same introduction. There was probably a more elegant way than just having Miguel recount what happened in Tiger's Eye. But I'm not sure if there's much more of an elegant way that wasn't just someone saying, so where have you been, Miguel? Well, <laughs> let's go over this one more time. Honestly, in 2024, that's exactly how you do it, thanks to how memetic Into the Spider-Verse has become. They're both even multiverse stories. Though I also know there are some people that are tired of that framing. I would add that Toby and I have gone over that chapter in detail, and honestly, I think it works just fine. Especially with how Thomas Arlington's words lead into Chapter 7 and Miguel's narration, complete with melancholy guitar. For me, who had listened to Tiger's Eye mere months earlier, perhaps it was covering very familiar ground. But many New Century fans might not have heard it since 2015, meaning that would have been possibly three to four years ago. Even Alejandra Vargas, who binged all the books last year, shared two relevant details. One, that she read so fast she often forgot the salient details of stories. And second, because she read in her chaos reading order, Tiger's Eye was third on her list, and Steamheart was eighth. In her case, an extended refresher might have been important. Uh, ultimately, I feel like uh, Steamheart 
while you could read this first, and while I hope it's an extremely rewarding experience, because I believe I've put in, I put in every building block you need to appreciate the story. It still is going to be better if you've listened to or read some of the others, uh, in the same way that Avengers ended up being the most popular film by far in Marvel's phase one. And you could just go into that and they very elegantly explain who everyone is in much shorter order than I do because I was working with long form. But at the same time, if you've seen Iron Man, Captain America and Thor and Incredible Hulk and even Iron Man 2, everything's going to pay off more. So... You know, honestly, I think I'm going to find it harder and harder as we go on after Steamheart to continue people's stories and make this a good first book for them. Mm. Because that you're joining them after they've had so much progress of their characters already. I think it'll be a lot easier with brand new stories. And I've got a couple of them on the slate. Mm. Um, and then there's going to be a couple which are brand new stories for some characters and continuations of their arc for other characters. So that's going to be a bit of a... I'm going to have to give a very elegant description of who this person is as they continue. And if you want to learn more about how Alex has succeeded with making new books accessible, you can once more listen to our White Scarves team-up episode with Alejandra, or even just the News of the Century episodes for Stone Spring Maidens and Panther Soul. Eventually, we're also going to have a discussion with a new member of the Discord whose first book was Alex's newest, Castle of the Moon. So, that'll be fun. I think if we look at it in terms of uh, one of the the long series that you referred to in terms of how you were trying to shape this was Discworld. Discworld, yeah. And um, that being a selection of threads of various different plots and characters that you could jump in with any of them and eventually they would all start to weave together. But I think with Discworld, and I, I strongly suspect that New Century is going to end up being the same, there is a point after which if you jump in, it's a bit too deep. You can't explain the joke without the risk of it no longer being funny. Yeah, sort of the the Reaper Man, Witches Abroad kind of era. You could probably come in at that point and very quickly pick up who everybody is and how they all interact with each other. Go much beyond that and world-changing things have started to happen that make it difficult to go back. Then again, Marvel have thrived on this soap opera style ongoing story and kevin feige's just recently said about the marvel tv stuff oh if you want to know everything about what's going on in the new marvel movies you're gonna have to watch this stuff on disney plus they haven't said that before well to be fair of course kevin feige's going to say that he wants all the monies yeah Let's just make a running tally of comments from 2019 that have not aged well so that's one that does kind of indicate the major tone, like the, the, the difference in, in the approach to that Marvel TV versus, say, the Netflix stuff uh, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which you could quite easily never, ever watch mm-hmm. and still enjoy the movies because they were in their own pocket universes and, and the TV never affected the movies. Indeed. And as of the release of Echo and the subsequent revamping of Daredevil Born Again, that's number two. But, I mean, for example, you wouldn't tell somebody who was getting into Marvel now, start with Far From Home. Oh, fuck. There's been... 
Yeah, there's a, a couple of people have said, I've never watched a Marvel movie. How, just tell me which ones do I really need to see? Do I have to do it in this order? If nothing else, unless they're all, if they're all on Disney Plus, that's different. Mm. But if it's like, right, you're going to have to pay 20 quid each per Blu-ray. Well, this is the thing. They're not all going to be on Disney Plus. No? Well, the Spider-Man ones aren't because Sony owns them. Holy shirt balls. <laughs> I'd say that's number three, but we can't be sure the Spider-Man movies will stay on Disney+, Plus, with all the various shenanigans with Sony and streaming platforms. Okay, so, I mean, yeah, yeah. short of it is, as time goes on, I think uh, uh, New Century will become less accessible from the sides. You'll have to go mm. in from the, from, the, from the ground. You have to pick an mm. entry point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll do, like, a little crash course thing where it's like, right, if you need to know about what happened in New Century, here's this, like a short, short version. When I get to the book where it's, it's like having this available as a podcast or a, a little book, like a chapter of one book, um, just to bring everyone up to date, might be advantageous. I don't know who does turn up and starts reading book 13 of a uh, book series first. Mm. And that's definitely number three. But there'll be people who do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, people who still use libraries a lot. Yeah. And I suppose if there's a really good standalone story, which I've got quite a few uh, mm, planned, yes. then and people are like, "Oh, you've got to read just this." Absolutely, I've uh, in fact I've done that with a few friends of mine. I would say, okay, if you're not sure which one to go for, Arlington, do that one first. See if you and it depends on the taste of the yeah. individual. Because for some people, I would say, "Oh, Princess Thieves is a really good one," or "Tiger's Eye is a fantastic one." So it will always depend on the individual and i will never understand the people who said oh i started on mass effect 2 and i can't imagine getting the same experience without playing the first one but nevertheless they're lifelong fans and that was their experience Mm. with it i could see just about getting in on mass effect 2 it's got a much more accessible action system it's mm. different with games though because especially when the gameplay changes with each one Mm. it's i I know so many people who did start with mass effect 1 and almost didn't continue because the play style was so frustrating if you uh were like starting to read a book and it's like when was this made somebody wrote this book 10 years ago it's so old (laughs) (laughs) it's written lemon juice and I have to hold it over a candle that's no good but I think this was one of the things I found the most interesting about the way you shape let them go because that really as a replacement book one as, a, as a, an entry portal that one is absolutely perfect are we allowed to use the people it's ideal it's ideal for most okay. people because, um, yeah. because it works entirely on its own as a standalone story if that's all somebody wants you can give them that and it's self-contained hmm. however it is intrinsically linked to the core story enough that if they do want to read more they can move on and it gives a really solid grounding in, say, if you move to secret rooms, mm. okay, now I understand what the background is for this. That one started out life as just a, a movie treatment. It was going to be like, well, I'll write this as a script. I'll see if I can get it uh, made as a movie on uh, low budget. And I was like, honestly, I'm probably better off just turning it into a book to see how it goes. And it ended up really tight. Mm. But uh, it's it's a double-edged sword writing books with loads of different tones and exploring different subgenres of sci-fi because and and ultimately eventually subgenres of fantasy uh, because 
everyone's different. And if you're an author who does a very consistent one type of book, like say Tom Clancy, you're going to have an audience who just knows they can hoover up every book and they'll get the same thing every time, which is their fix. Whereas with this, it's a bit more risky. Like if you love The Princess Thieves, it's like, well, that's good. You'll probably like The Christmas Thieves. You might not like Steamheart. That like if, if you got in with the whimsical Christmas Thieves, some of the dark stuff in Steamheart could wreck you. Mm-hmm. So mm. it's, uh, and you know, if, if you really like the political, uh, thriller of Arlington, that's not going to necessarily mean you like Tiger's Eye at all. Mm. If I, if I never explode into popularity, it's because the books are all different from each other. I, mm. I feel like the difference is a part of the strength. I mean, that's sort of a bit what they were doing with the Marvel movies as well. Mm-hmm. But I would also say that. When you started me on this journey, it took me some mental convincing to begin with Let Them Go because it is so not my genre normally. Yeah. Gotta hold myself up to the same standard, so there's number four. Alex, through his work and other films he loves, has made me a major fan of gothic horror, at least. And even though I love it now, it's the kind of love where it's like... I can't just go and watch seven whenever I want to. And I can't just go and watch I can't go and, and, and re-listen to Let Them Go. It will whenever. hurt you. Yes. I get it. Mm. Completely. <laughs> uh, no comment. If you know, then you know. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, but but at the same time, I, uh, if I started it with something very light, like a, a, a Princess Thieves origin story, the, the Black Shuck solo book. Um, <laughs> we're waiting on that one. James would love that. But if I did start it with the, the Black Shuck, then the moment it gets to let them go, people would be like, wait, what? What? Bring back the comedy. So I, I guess I had to start with something that kind of set the tone for the overall world. But then within that world, you can find pockets of levity and absurdity at times. So, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a little higgledy piggledy, but then I just, so am I. This book series is me insofar as I've got quite a lot going on. I can be really serious and I can be really funny. And, you know, I go through phases of, of being very focused and very serious and then phases of just being kind of childish and, uh, I, I suppose it would, it makes it easier for me to just be able to carry on writing if I'm not just having to do one thing. Okay. Uh, question three for Sharon, this one is. <laughs> um, actually, given the direction this went in, uh, okay. I feel like the next question should, uh, slightly down on the page about the way that you moved a lot of the writing of uh, Abigail and James's backstory uh, into secret rooms in order to strengthen that novel uh, while reducing the load on Steamheart. Something I hadn't known until you mentioned it is the idea that there are books out there, like serious, you know, in terms of literary people knowing about them, The Hobbit, that that's at some point J.R.R. Tolkien went in and changed things about a published work in order to make it fit better with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and so the fact that you've gone and made several changes to both the story and to the audio drama over the course of phase one, given your experience in that and the fact that going forward, you're trying to 
finish writing one story before going on to do the audio drama. Do you think you're going to continue to have post-publishing edits? Uh, and, and under what circumstances would you would you do that sort of thing? Honestly, I think I'd keep it to a relative minimum. There's other little things like if you go to Princess Thieves now and uh, listen to it, then around about the time that Gwen and Viola first leave Buckingham Palace, there's a really great atmospheric little piece about uh, their journey down through the catacombs of Buckingham Palace. That was not in The Princess Thieves when we released it as a podcast. It was not in the audio drama. It was in the book when we finally published it many, many months later. And I actually went back and and recorded that bit of monologue it was uh it was just my narration as as robin and re-added it so i added it to the one on Bandcamp. so you should like if you every every subsequent download since then including the one that i think you got greg would have had that in there um <clears throat> so i will probably occasionally add a little bit but i'm very unlikely to take stuff out mm. uh it'll it'll just be like oh this was a really good bit i'll make sure that that's in there the bits that I added to Secret Rooms, that was substantial, mainly down to the fact that, when, that Secret Rooms was the first narrative story I did, and it's light in its original form. It's like 15 chapters long. The next one, Tiger's Eye, 24 chapters, incredibly intense at times, and really going into Harau's backstory. And that's something which didn't happen for James and Abigail, so I ended up... Yeah, you know, I, I was saving that stuff for Steamheart and didn't realize quite how gargantuan... Steamheart was going to be. I'll just say those numbers again. 15 for Secret Rooms, 24 for Tiger's Eye. Steamheart, had I left those nine chapters in, 51 chapters long. Goodness. Yeah. And they were long <laughs> chapters at times as well. So um, it was about balancing Steamheart, but it was also about bringing Secret Rooms up to the standard of the three that followed. Uh, Arlington, Tiger's Eye, and The Princess Thieves. But I don't think I'm going to be making any books from now on that end up light because of my lack of experience. Mm, I was going to say, I think a big element of that is that when Cartographers and Secret Rooms were first written, you were just feeling early it out. in your writing career. Yeah. You hadn't necessarily struck your style yet. Mm. You hadn't hit your stride in terms of what you were able to create and put together. I hadn't even worked out the format. If you remember, Cartographers went out first as an audio drama, then I turned it into a series of Ken Burns Civil War style uh, documentary on YouTube, uh, just while the Patreon was starting up. And then when I got to the end of that, it's like, right, I have now run out of images I can use. Mm. (laughs) The amount of old photographs I had to use all at once. And uh, the the numbers were tiny because the algorithm was not going to go, oh, yeah, let's stick this at the top. Uh, and it never did. So then I was like, right, I guess we could do like a, a weekly audio drama and I could write a book and then put that out week by week. And I was still writing Secret Rooms as the last few chapters were going out. Mm. So if you consider that Cartographers was very experimental. Yeah, Secret as was Secret Rooms. Rooms really was the first proper attempt at yeah. writing this story yeah and um but i mean I, I will still be able because of the medium that i i work in because i work on kindle and uh, various audio outlets which allow me to go in and make edits and improve and update uh i can go in and change something J.R.L. tolkien had to make Gollum the, the Gollum sequence fit with lord of the rings 
And that meant publishing a whole new wave of The Hobbit. And everyone who had the old first editions had a version which didn't quite fit with Lord of the Rings. And that's the point, actually. As a self-published author, um, as an indie author, you don't have to persuade a publisher to do a run Mm. of the latest updates. Although, interestingly... I'm sorry. Does this mean I get to chase you around with a bit of wood now, Alex? On Amazon, if you go to audible and try to download uh secret rooms you will find that it has 15 chapters and it's the old ass not particularly fantastic audio quality version the first version that is because audible when you upload something keep it for 10 years and don't allow you to make any edits no oh so i can't take it off i can't add anything on i can't say there's nine extra goddamn chapters and much better audio quality i can't improve the experience for anyone using audible and that made me decide i don't need audible bandcamp's fine bandcamp will allow me to do whatever here's another marginable number five because while audible only sucks more now everyone's worried about what's going to happen with bandcamp after epic bought it sold it and people did get screwed as a result yeah and i never want to screw people over if there's anyone who ever ended up missing something that they really wanted or needed if they can get in touch with me i will sort them out with that again Mm. i will i will like i'll I'll send them an original kindle version or or ebook version of the original as written secret rooms if they so want It's not as good, but if you so want it, you can have it. Not that this was necessarily a consideration at the time, but Bandcamp is a fantastic platform for independent creators. Audible, not so much. So it's nice to be Mm. able to support that platform because obviously they get a cut of whatever gets sold through. Similarly, um, if you want to update everyone's version of a Kindle book... You have to negotiate with Kindle. <laughs> yeah. To, you have to make a claim that what you've got to update it with is significant enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also all of the people who've already bought it have to have their account set to, if this book changes, give me the new version. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there is there are definitely questions to be raised about artists changing their art afterwards. And I've always tried to be... I have to have a little Lucas alarm in the back of my head going, hang on, am I messing something up? Am I making it worse by taking out something good? But every single change I've made, to my mind, has strengthened the narrative and strengthened the characters and strengthened the books rather than subtracting. Uh, and no one's ever challenged me on anything. No one's ever said, it's crap now. Not one person. Which is oh. reassuring. Well, most of what you've done has, as you said, has been additive Mm. rather than subtractive, which is one of the difficulties that come with, say, the new versions of the uh, the original Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. But yeah, in this particular case, I was lucky enough to get all of the newest versions with all of the improvements that you've made, and I'm very happy with, with everything that's come so far. Since 2019, there have been many times Alex changed or released work, most of them either additive or simply reformatting what order the chapters come in. The one time it was subtractive was when Alex remastered Arlington, which we've already talked about. And that was a form of subtractive that only made subtle but important framing changes, not affecting length much at all. But it just occurs to me that, that first of all, I'd never heard of 
the idea of, of someone going back and changing a published work. So that was that that was as an interesting experience to have. Uh, no, no, don't get up. I'll get the stick. You know, this is, as you said, has been your trial by fire. So you're you're better at, at figuring this out in advance now, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Oh, uh, I haven't told anybody yet about uh, how uh, the beginning of Secret Rooms. Uh, you remember when uh, that guy offered Abigail a nickel for a kiss? And she oh, punched- goodness. Yeah, she punches yes. him. Tommy Sweeney. Uh, now I'm going to make it that Tommy punched first. So Abigail was just <laughs> defending herself. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, Tommy, close your eyes. Oh, boy. Lean forward. I wonder what I'll get for a quarter. No, no, no. No, no, no. I don't think so. Well, and honestly, if Tommy Sweeney had taken a swing at Abigail, she would just have rolled her head around. Yeah, she'd well, just duck and give him one in the belly. Which is kind of what Han does anyway, but uh, mm-hmm. he, they digitally have, make him go, whoop. <laughs> have you seen that they've added yet another thing to the Greedo sequence on the what? Disney Plus version? What? I mean, it's the oddest thing, but just before Greedo shoots slash hand shoot. I don't even know anymore. Does he lick but... his lips as though he's got <laughs> thirsty malice? Like, he, he just says, McClunky. McClunky. Yeah, that's that's just all he says. Is that Rodian for prepare to die? <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, but it I... clearly gave Han, like, even more of the high ground on that. So, but, which I shouldn't my use ass. that phrase. I did see somebody um, describe it as the Greedo scene has now taken on a life of its own. It is sentient and is rewriting itself. <laughs> McClunky. Han McClunky. McClunky. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about this bit. Alex was making McClunky references for a while and then probably forgot. There we go. A reason to re-release this interview. Bring in McClunky back. Um, okay, so next question, I think it's Toby. Yes, please. Okay, so this question goes to both of you guys. If you could talk with any of the characters of New Century for moral or emotional support, who would you want to sit down with over a cup of tea and or something stronger? I'll only let Sharon field this one first. Um, I think... Right, okay, my instinct is to say Rebecca, because she can make proper tea. Mm. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> She even gives you biscuits. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which I think would be quite vital. Also, I'm kind of cheating a bit because if I want to sit down with um, either Rebecca or Abigail, I'm effectively just talking to myself. So mm. Those are the best conversations. They are. They often are, yes. I think moral or emotional support. Honestly, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go with Rebecca. Uh-huh. Yeah, that works mm. for me. What would you talk about? I don't know. <laughs> it depends what moral well, let's hope or Rebecca does that. Well, it depends what moral or emotional support I needed at the time. Okay. So you just have a heart to heart. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I can see what kind that. of tea is Rebecca's favourite? I'm just trying to think if they were making Yorkshire tea at that point. Yorkshire tea. Yorkshire tea is what I drink. So yeah. that's, that's if it's available to her, that's what Rebecca drinks. Also she has a dog. Yes. That I can mm. pet while we talk. Oh yes, Rafe. Nice therapy dog. Yes. Did uh, okay. Did you guys squeal when you uh, heard that his name was Rafe? Or? Yes. Yes. I I actually had a sort of simultaneous like oh, and then oh, 
Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, nice. uh, all at once. A bittersweet. Nice. That's exactly mm. what I wanted. I, I, I got a sample of uh, a particular husky that's uh, a pain in the ass on YouTube to go for the uh, bit where Annie's <laughs> well, petting him. But yeah, actually, I was uh, a question I had thought of later is was some of the audio for Rafe from your dog um, Indy? Yeah, no, uh, he is. He's not very quiet. Vocal, he will he? bark excitedly once in the morning. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he, he generally will make noises, either barking or whining, if he mm. wants to go out or come in. Yeah, but mm. when I'm actually looking for uh, dog sounds, um, I, I need to find a very vocal one on uh, YouTube or something. Mm. Um, apparently, uh, Yorkshire Tea was created in 1886. Well, tailors who make it yeah. were founded in 1886. 1886. So let's say that... In theory. It's, bef- <laughs> it's only 1883 now. It's not happened. Oh. Furthermore, while... Charles Edward Taylor and his brother created their company, Taylors, in 1886. The Yorkshire Tea brand wasn't launched until 1977. So I guess Darjeeling? No? Earl Grey? I don't like Earl Grey. It's a bit too fruity. Okay. Oh, uh, Gwen likes Earl Grey. Yes. Tea, Earl Grey, hot. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You can always go the Uncle Ira route and have jasmine Jasmine tea. Yes. Oh, yes. yes. My my favourite tea is chamomile and spiced apple. Mm. I was going to say um, Merlain because I adore Merlain. And and if I needed any kind of wise advice, she's immediately who I'd go to. However... Because Toshiro Yagyu is basically Uncle Iroh in my head, that would give me a chance to have jasmine tea with Uncle Iroh, so I would take yeah. that immediately. <laughs> uh, if I could get them both together, that would be an absolute. That would be a tea party and a half. I would love that. Would that would be amazing. Mm. <laughs> uh, next question, Greg. Yeah, well, then let's uh, circle back to the top, then. It's one of the things I was thinking about a lot, uh, after listening to the Steam Heart Roundtable, uh, Sharon, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things you talked about was how it became easier to play Abigail when you you, you found a way to integrate her personality into your own. How has that experience affected you in going forward in life and other creative endeavors? I think... If I remember rightly, the way I summed it up when we did the roundtable was that Abigail is it was very difficult for me to connect with initially because she's a very impulsive person. Mm. And impulsivity is something that I have spent a lot, a lot of my life <laughs> uh, trying to keep under control. To the point where if you had asked me 10 years ago, maybe 12... If I felt there was much impulsivity in my character and personality, I would have said no, Mm. not in the slightest. That's just not me. And I think as time went on, it wasn't so much that I changed Abigail to suit me. It was more that I found more and more threads of the Abigail that Alex had created that were me just very well hidden. Mm. So what ended up happening was we kind of met in the middle. Mm. She got more mature and more experienced in terms of dealing with people and more aware of what was going on in the world. And I 
recognise the elements of her that were in me, but I'd been kind of wallpapering over for quite some time and started letting those elements come out more. Overall, I think in terms of how that affected me in life and other stuff, uh, anybody who also listens to School of Movies will know that in recent months, maybe the last couple of years, I've certainly got a lot more vocal about expressing uh, how I feel about things. Yes. And I'm much more willing to to let it come through if I am particularly passionate about something, whether that is passionate anger or uh, joy or sadness, whatever. I'm, I'm, I let those emotional forces come through more when I podcast, which in the past I was, I kept it very much stifled. I pondered putting in an example, but that's too much of an interruption. Going off the inside out model Check out the various School of Movies episodes. Dark Phoenix for Sharon's Anger. Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children for Disgust. Hellblade's Senuous Sacrifice for Sadness. And any number of episodes for Sharon's Unrestrained Joy. So she's given me that, for which I am extremely grateful. And that it's, it's impossible for that not to then manifest in everyday life. So I think really what she's brought me is the ability to live more. And I think what I've brought her is the ability to temper herself a little bit. So I think we've been good for each other. Yeah, stillness is a good way of putting it, but I think we've been good for each other. I'm picturing in my head that scene in uh, Days of Future Past where the two versions of Charles... Mm. For a moment, so sort of have a conversation with one another. Yeah. That's mm. one of Sharon's favourite bits of Epstein mm. Arcana. Yeah. Yeah. Nice answer. So, Alex, did you know as soon as you had finished Let Them Go that you had to get Rebecca into Steamheart? And Sharon, how did you approach playing Rebecca a little later on in her life after she had gone through everything that the intervening years had in store, which we got a little sort of teasing glimpse of from some of the things she talked about in Steamheart? I think uh, Let Them Go I had was the proving ground for Rebecca to be a survivor. The Force of Nature song, no one's ever talked about or noticed this, but it applies to both Amanda and Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, after watching it on a loop, because Gavin's just that friggin' good, and mm-hmm. uh, and that singer, um, just, you know, such a soulful thing. But I, I needed there to be this fierce desire to live in both of them. And Rebecca, I, I imagined, would have gone from place to place at that point, but not really settled, because the opposite of being agoraphobic and not really wanting to leave the house or her place of comfort and to actually be able to confront that would be to never really settle and never really have a home and just keep moving about from place to place and not be afraid of the outside and not be afraid of confrontations and to be able to like get over her hang-ups so hard that she actually ended up developing a whole bunch of new ones um (laughs) and i I figure that that like because that's that's a good way of keeping characters 
mobile. Like if they go through an arc and then it's like, and then they were fine. <laughs> There's no point writing them anymore. They all lived happily ever um, after. So uh, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, um, we're facing as a challenge with Maureen is that Harau's gone through so much that to give her new things to do requires her to maybe kind of not so much unlearn what she's learned, but learn this new stuff so hard that she actually gets some other bad lessons out of it that mm-hmm. she needs to then work through in another way. So uh, I figured that if if Rebecca was going to wander the world, because one of the, the unifying elements of almost every main character in New Century is that they want to be of use. They want to do something significant. This is obviously stemming from my own direct need to have not just gone through life consuming. And it just, it, it felt fairly natural to go, right, that's let them go done. Uh, it's going to be a while before I write any books that star Rebecca, but I can damn well get her back in the game and just tell people she's okay. And she's going to be, you know, moving in and out of these stories when she props up again, I I, I I would hope that this appearance gets cheers. Oh, there were cheers. A number of other things, too. No spoilers, but Rebecca Wolverton will return. But, um, mm. yeah, she'll be back. But like, I, just, I, I love the character because she is this fusion of me and Sharon. In the same way that kind of James and Abigail are like us castling each other and taking on on each other's um, neuroses and and switching places. Uh, Rebecca has a lot of my hang-ups in uh, Let Them Go and a lot of Sharon's hang-ups. She's kind of a a conglomeration, but at the same time, she's not the same hot mess. She's got it more together, which is how I attribute Sharon, as opposed to me, where a lot of my characters are just these kind of emotional wrecks barging their way through life. Thomas can be an absolute prick, which is why I I miss him, but um, mm. uh, it, it it felt it felt right to be able to put that element of myself up on the dock and say, okay, so this desperate desire you have to be in charge of everything. What if you were in charge of everything and your super take chargeness kind of resulted in everyone feeling like they were trapped and obligated to do precisely what you said. And then I had to create Sarah to mitigate that so that he wasn't a madman. Yeah. The, the, the ultimate end of, um, of getting uh, Rebecca into Steamheart at that point was, as I said, originally it was just, it was going to be a, a particularly articulate and intelligent prostitute named Rebecca, which is just weird because I did not then go into let them go thinking, right, let's do the beginning of this character and she's English and she's way older and and all of that stuff. It just happened to be a weird coincidence. All of that slotted into place and that then led to me deciding that because for the longest time it was going to be that James and Abigail kind of danced around one another but I had in the back of my head well they'll get together before the end even if one of them dies or both of them die they'll be together I'm sure and then I decided to challenge that with but they don't necessarily have to be in fact they might not at all and maybe don't force your characters into relationships especially if like that they've got that much stuff to work through uh, so yeah. yeah, I presented uh, Rebecca there as a as a, a possible organic uh, way forward for both Rebecca and James, and 
uh, Abigail to find someone else or we'll, we'll see. But, uh, it, it just felt like Rebecca was one of the stronger characters that I could actually really introduce that would challenge that. So that's a very long ass way of putting it. <laughs> and in terms of how I approach playing Rebecca, Rebecca has throughout all of this been the easiest character for me to pick up. Because, More even than Mortimer? Yeah. Yeah. Cause Mortimer has, Mortimer's kind of a sharp edged version of who I can be, but it's not really me. That kind of hard edged bitch. It's a character I enjoy playing, but it's not really me. Mm. Whereas Rebecca has always felt much more like, not that we've been through exactly the same stuff, obviously, but that the framework of the things that she's up against is much more similar to the framework of things that I've kind of felt myself to be up against throughout my life. So really, it coming back to her a little bit later on was actually pretty straightforward because it was just like, okay, pick two points in your life that are roughly five to ten years apart and how have you shifted? Well, then how would she have shifted? Mm. So, Alex, you, you voice act the most characters in New Century, and, and you've mentioned in the past how all of the all of the big ones, the significant characters, are are, are facets of your personality, but but taken exaggerated, taken uh, more strongly in one direction. Something I've heard a lot is that other authors talking about how their characters talk back to them during the writing process. So. What has been your experience with those characters when you go on to give them your actual voice? And has it changed you or allowed you to reflect on yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, The idea that when we dream, every character in the dream is us. And it's Mm. an aspect of us challenging part of our brain to go through different thought processes that we might not want to go through when we're conscious. I mean, effectively, that's what most authors are doing. They're dreaming on the printed page. They're allowing an aspect of their own mind to interrogate another aspect or multiple other aspects. And they're putting that out there into a a form that um, fits into a narrative and allows people to uh, identify. Because we're all of us multifaceted. Even the most basic seeming people have got depths i would love to continue to think and not have proved wrong um <laughs> when writing a character's dialogue often repeating it back and actually reading it in that voice will give it the shape and, and i'll go no actually i think they would say this and just just twist it around both male and female characters whether i'm voicing them or not honestly the final revision of every story is when me and the actors go through them uh, because there are times when, like, uh, Maureen and Loretta in particular, uh, say, I think she would say this. And then they change it around and, and, uh, they'll, most of the time they'll give me an extra reading with what they think it'll be. And I'll often end up changing it to, to fit with them because they, they've gotten to really know their characters. And that's pretty much the same with mine. I think I worked out that of the 200 plus new century characters, <laughs> I've I've done 
about a third of them. I have done so. I, loads of them are like tiny, short, little appearances where I just needed to have a voice that said something very, very quick. But some really significant ones have have, have gone through me. Um, mm. And I don't necessarily feel like just the ones I voiced are more like me. I mean, for that, there's a whole aspect of me in the uh, feminine characters, like multiple aspects. Really, I think that the, the fact that I voiced them act- isn't actually as significant as, as you might think. I, I think I, I've... Um, you voice them when you write them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I voice them when I write them and I, and I repeat it back in, in the way that they would say it and I often make changes and just re-colloquialize the language. Because like, sometimes I will write a little bit too articulate or a little too serious for a character and I'll just have to sort of just mess it up a little bit and sometimes it's the opposite but no I feel uh, an actual connection to most of the characters apart from the psychopaths there are one or two psychopaths that I'm just like this is like a cold shut off version of a, of a, a human shell with no soul in it and uh, it's frightening to inhabit someone like Francis and I tend to just introduce them and then get rid of them as soon as possible even the characters, because obviously when it's a character that's being voiced by someone else, there's a lot of work that you do with the actors. And yeah. as you say, they will bring their own insight into how those characters would, would talk and express themselves. But even the characters that you do, it's not as if you then write and record that character in a vacuum. You tend to use me as a sounding board a lot of the time to to kind of go back and forth and and see if there's any way that we would tweak it so it's not as if that character has gone through no filters if that makes sense yeah yeah and that also i need these filters to be able to make sure that i am on the level regarding uh representation so if i'm putting words into a woman's mouth about things that very much pertain to women i've got a lot of women to be able to tell me that's bullshit if it ever happens (laughs) Even if it's something as simple as redheads wouldn't wear orange dresses. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I loved that bit. That was great. And it was, uh, it, it's so simple, but uh, yeah, I hadn't visualized it the way it should be. I thought, well, she's red, orange will go like it'll be like she's on fire. But uh, no, it's apparently they, they, they don't. Also, this immensely practical woman will select these dramatically stacked heels. Oh, <laughs> no, she won't. No, no, no. Not that I'm saying you ever would say that. I have heard I'm enough just... of your not those shoes. Yeah, exactly. To but never I'm just saying put someone in the wrong ass that's footwear. That's another perspective. Although, interestingly, speaking of footwear, if you got like all of the shoes. The shoes are of the uh, <laughs> characters that have been given like a full body shot by um, Antonio. They're all different and they're all very much the shoes maketh the man, the woman and the tiger. Uh, and uh, everyone's got a different style to them. And it's all very considered. I, I, I like when, when I was um, got Antonio to design the most recent character which i haven't yet revealed yet and uh i was like right i found these boots these are rad and no one else has these yet so we'll we'll make her like that look at what they're wearing on their head and how they're wearing their hair and look at how what they're wearing on their feet that's a major signifier for the uh, characters Mm. that's interesting you should mention that because when i do like physical acting on stage which i haven't done for a very long time but used to do quite a bit of the costume and the shoes were always a really key part of how I brought my characters to life. Not because 
it was important to me how the audience saw them necessarily, but because it would affect how I felt inhabiting that character. So if if somebody is wearing a particular pair of shoes, they have to stand in a certain way. Mm. That means they have to walk in a certain way. And that will affect how they present themselves, how they interact. There are certain things that they will or won't do because the costume and the shoes don't allow them to do so or that they must do because the costume and the shoes oblige them to do so. Now, doing voice acting is you don't have any of that. Not only do you not have costume and not have shoes and not have hair, well, not not have hair, but not have like your hair done in a certain way. Good Lord, were the hairy aliens around even longer and they just hadn't told us about them yet? You do most of the recording sitting down, or at least we do. So yeah. even the, the physicality of the character is much more restricted. So I think Antonio's artwork... I've noticed a significant difference in how I voice a character if we already have a picture of them than if it's entirely coming out of my head. And honestly, that might be part of what adjusted my take on Abigail as well. The more images I had of her, the more I could visualise who she was and Mm. and try and embody who she was. So the first picture of her is that's just head and shoulders and she's very smiley. And the second one with the eye patch, she's much more sort of scowling. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's a, that's another reason why when uh, Harry was uh, had to re- had switch out her boots her, that she's so used to wearing all the time for some sensible flats while she was in the the dress, that was the thing that unsettled her the most. Mm. To to go back briefly to something you said a moment ago, mm-hmm. th- the reason why I thought that perhaps voice acting a character rather than simply writing what they say or what they think might be different is from the experience of you know the saying you don't really know something until you explain it to somebody else or the idea that you need that therapy is important because then you vocalize things that were only in your head until a moment ago that there might be a difference between merely writing something and, and having to say it in their voice that there might be something that goes on there internally. Yeah, um, you're right. I went around the block and, and circled the airport on that particular question, but it is a very expansive one because it pertains to writing so many goddamn characters. Um, mm. <sighs> okay, I'll ask me a more direct question in that regard because I'm, I'm, I don't want to ramble here. Yeah, okay. Um one of the biggest important conversations in phase one would be Thomas confronting Seth. Hmm. Yeah. And it felt to me like on some level, this was, this was two different parts of your brain talking to your, like having an argument with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was very emotionally resonant. And uh, I guess I, I just wondered, did you have any personal breakthroughs having these, animated conversations or arguments with yourself through your characters. Mm. That's a really nice way of putting it. Um, Mm. One interesting side note, by the way, uh, I'd always seen Thomas as uh, being played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, and Mm. I'd always performed Seth the way that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch played Khan in uh, (laughs) Star Trek Into Darkness. He's got Mm. that really intense way of delivering every syllable and like you know locking his eyes on you 
And then they both ended up like roommates in Doctor Strange and <laughs> just watching them running around in the street. I was like, this is perfect. Yeah, on, on top of the Capitol building, they are having an argument for the sake of mankind's soul. That was, as you may have noticed it, me arguing with myself. People can or cannot be saved. If they can be saved, put the effort into it. If they can't be saved, just leave it to chaos. Yeah, effectively, that's Seth uh, interrogating what he uh, perceives as somebody who considers himself to be a refined human and saying, you know, this is you put a necktie on a wild <coughs> animal. That was written mid-2016 uh, during the uh, election run-up. And Oof. I was seeing the Trump rallies at the time and thinking, these are wild animals that have taken off their neckties. Mm. And, you know, I was imagining... Thomas wavering at this point and thinking his analogue, who, by the way, is a far, far more benevolent man than Thomas ever was, um, it was in the White House going, right, so I guess I'm about to cede this Oval Office to a maniac, and there's nothing I can do about it that isn't breaking the law. Mm. Just that sense of being frustrated and trapped, that was bouncing around in my head and ricocheting. So that was me saying, okay, if if this goes badly and the next few years are going to be terrible, you're going to need to be able to carry on somehow. You're going to be, need to be able to wrap your mind around this. So that and other scenarios in New Century <coughs> and in School of Movies, a lot of it is just trying to get more perspective on humanity, trying to mine some measure of hope from it, and just trying to get that little bit of extra fuel to get me a little bit further. I think it would be fair to say as well that the process of creating these characters and exploring these concepts has effectively become your therapy. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, Greg, about the the therapeutic benefit of externalising certain thoughts that may otherwise just bounce around your head like a flipping pinball table. Mm. Um, and, you know, for, for some people, it is verbalising them. For me personally, uh, the most effective way of externalising them is to write them down, but with a pen and paper. I, if yeah. I can I can type them, but it doesn't quite have the same effect. There's a, a somatic effect if I actually have to move the pen around the page um, that, that gets those thoughts out for me. And there's a, a particular therapeutic concept as well, which I think is, is relevant to this, which is the idea of configurations of self. And that is taking those various different facets of your, your personality and different facets of your... Uh, comprehension and your ideas and grouping them into different parts not necessarily to be totally separate and individual and and kind of go off and do their own thing but to be able to examine <coughs> aspects of yourself which might at first glance appear to be contradictory mm. it's a way of being able to reconcile in in the example of of Thomas and Seth being able to reconcile that well here's the extreme control that I want to be in place in these scenarios here's the extreme chaos that I kind of know is inevitable in some of these scenarios how can I resolve that mm. conflict without feeling like my brain is tearing itself apart 
and then they come to an accord, and then the control aspect dies, leaving only chaos behind. I wonder what I was doing there. But then if you look at, <coughs> again, without wanting to be too spoilery about it, if you look at the way that Seth then progresses as a character, mm. we start to see more elements of a desire for control creeping into how he interacts with people mm. and the yeah. frustration that he expresses when he can't control a certain individual, mm-hmm. which the early Seth, who was like, hey, let the chips fall where they may, mm. might not have admitted that that was something that he would eventually come around to wanting. Mm. Mm. Having returned to this old interview, it's fascinating looking on how Toby and I internalized parts of it or came back to parts of it on our own. We didn't even know we were going to do a podcast at this point. The idea of collaborating wasn't an idea we had until after we were done. And this interview wasn't something we needed, per se. It was something we were asked to do. Alex looked at the questions I had been asking him in droves during 2019, and all the stuff that Toby had written on his Tumblr, and then put us together because he saw something promising in the way our minds worked. And when they worked together, it resulted in something stronger than we were alone. It made us stronger. Just as Alex and Sharon talked about these stories being personal fuel, it was fuel for us also. In our own lives, but also giving us the creative spark we needed to not only travel through the window ourselves, but even to move beyond the window. See what I did there? I'm loving this conversation. I'm just Eddie Izzard, just eating everything around him. <laughs> oh, no, so I'm... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote Seth originally as to, to be this sort of force of chaos. He's actually in. I wrote a, a book called The Bright Ones when I was about 21, and it is uh, like... <laughs> It is like uh, self-insert Gary Sue set against a background of thinly disguised fanfic. Like, this is a bit from The Matrix. This is a bit from Final Fantasy. This is a bit from Star Wars. And it's it's just a sort of a, a hodgepodge of all the th- uh, things that I loved. And Seth was actually in there as this, I suppose... Uh, not really Tyler Durden. There was some Tyler Durden in there, but it was, it was much more this kind of, it was 2001, so there was a darker element of, of terrorism in there. And, uh, he was much more malevolent, much more based on Victor Creed, Sabretooth. That's foreshadowing for later. As I brought him into New Century, I, I realized I can't just make him this spiteful shit. He has to have so much more going for him. And, and, and I, I created a mystery around him. And the key to his character is that he's curious about humanity. And he's interested in yeah. what they might do and what the Wendigo might do. And while he started out as this force of chaos, if you, if you look at whenever his idea and of, of him keeping order is threatened, he loses his shit. Mm. He gets furious if you uh, if you mess with his plan, which is the yeah, opposite of chaos. A little bit hypocritical sometimes. Yeah, and he's got quite a lot of contradictions running through him that uh, actually make him al- almost more of this keeper of the Wendigo. Hmm. 
Mm. I suppose that he would be a contradiction in some ways if he rides a manticore, which is this combination of all these different things which in some ways shouldn't fit together, but they do, (laughs) and it's terrifying. That uh, manticore line was from the very first version of Steamheart when the first act of Steamheart was uh, Abigail and uh, James turning up at Weirwood before I'd actually written secret rooms at all when it was all just going to be one book that started with secret rooms and ended Steamheart with some Arlington and Tiger's Eye in the middle the opening uh, it was the opening line from Arlington this story takes place in the spring of 1883 the year Vice President Rutherford B. Hayes was eaten by a manticore and I just thought that was a it was just a great line to suggest okay right so 1883 Rutherford B. Hayes, if you know your history, you're like, hang on, he was never vice president at that during that year. He should have been president during that year. So something's wrong with that. Um, cause uh, he was president after Grant, uh, but Grant should have finished long before. So if you know your history, you're like, well, something's wrong with this. And then eaten by a manticore. Well, a lot's wrong with this. Okay? <laughs> this is fucking fantasy land. But at the same time, all of this stuff's come before, which means that it, it is that there's been some research done. So that became a one line mission statement for what New Century would be. Uh, I never realized I'd actually be being giving that manticore a name and a personality and keeping it moving throughout the stories. Now I just want to see a conversation, if it's even possible, between the nag and Brayoth. Right. The nag <laughs> would think Brayoth was an idiot. <laughs> oh, you let I him ride, you an do. Idiot. Yeah, I mean, like, Brayoth can't speak, but he, he can definitely express himself. And uh, I think, honestly, that the nag isn't uh, a fool himself, so he would not want to upset Brayoth. I can't help feeling like Brayoth would be kind of this sullen adolescent dragon type <laughs> in terms of personality. I don't know. He's uh, no, he's got like the sullen adolescent is more like the nag. Um, uh, Brayoth <laughs> has got a, a self possession about oh. him. He's if you remember when Haral was hanging around in in Seth's lair encampment, um, Brayoth was very non-combative, very uh, just True, there, yeah. being groomed, not attacking anyone. Mm. Brayoth is extremely well trained and, and shares a a very close symbiotic relationship with Seth, as we've now seen. They they share this power, and now they share it with um, Haral. Up until then, it was as though Brayoth was Seth's demon, if we're going to go by his dark materials. This would explain why Brayoth was so peaceful around Hral, as he recognised the energy previously inside he and Seth, now inside her too. This is such a fan question, but, you know, I would kick myself if I didn't ask it. Who were you both most excited to see interact in this story? In Steamheart. In Steamheart, yes. Sharon? Uh, I think for me, it was Frau and anybody. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And sorry, had those chapters. (laughs) Hence the extra chapters. Originally, it just, it jumped and, uh, yeah, went back and and everyone must interact with Harau and Harau must interact with everyone. I did that for the whole story, by the way. I plotted it out and it was like, everyone has to have talked to everyone. The only person who ended up not being able to talk to (laughs) everyone and have at least a moment with everyone was Raven. And I was writing all of these like ideas for, well, I suppose he could interview all of them throughout Steamheart. And I just, I found that 
It ended up feeling very forced. I, I, there were a couple of characters like Annie and um, Harry that I just didn't want to have interrogated by him because he's he's a prick when when he starts asking questions. So uh, I it just felt like he talked to enough people, but. Mm. You know, this is why Steamheart was so long. You had these nine major characters and everyone had to have an interaction with each other. Mm. It was like Mm. a whole season of Firefly all at once. Yeah, yeah. But I think the the reason why I was so uh, looking forward to Prow getting involved with the team was that I, I just, I love listening to Maureen's voice. And, oh, and yes. I think the way she performs the character is absolutely beautiful. I think the the life and spirit that she brings to Rao is incredible. And I just wanted to hear more of that. <laughs> um, mm. And although it, it not all of it ended up being verbal, um, and in part that was because um, Maureen had quite a few voice problems, and we, we did end up having to adjust things a little bit. Maureen's had voice problems since we were doing Tiger's Eye. She mm. started off okay, but as we developed and went through, she started to get it became more of a strain. Mm. And I got frightened by the end of Tiger's Eye, thinking, am I ever going to be able to give her her own book all to herself? And I think the answer is no, for that exact reason. It's it too much of a strain. too much of a strain. And... That sucks because she puts so much into that book. Mm-hmm. It's hypnotic to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's a situation we are trying to address. The same issue that makes it difficult for her to talk affects a number of other things in her life. And while some of her health issues have gotten better since moving out to Massachusetts, other things have stayed the same or even gotten worse. It's bad enough when it affects her ability to voice Hrau or anyone else in New Century. Because Hrau means a great deal to Maureen, as she has mentioned both in public and private. But when it affects her ability to talk in general, then it affects her job, and us just spending time with each other. Never mind things like getting a night's sleep or not ending up in coughing fits. So hopefully... We can make some progress with that once we see a new ENT. It reminds me of a particular performance. It, in terms of actual emotional impact, it doesn't compare to Haral, but um, there's a villain in the Devil May Cry series who, in his first appearance, the voice actor had a cold when he was recording the lines, so it has this sort of slight nasal quality. But for whatever reason it works and it means that there's a particular sound to it which every time that voice actor came back to record lines it actually it was fine enough it's just that even he can't quite recapture that element of it so he has to go around to a a school and let kids (laughs) sneeze on him yeah Oh, I'm just, uh, it's just so I can get my voice back to what it was like in Devil May Cry. Where are you throwing me? <laughs> it's okay, I'm a voice actor. Wait, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, don't tell him that. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned part of the reason why you added uh, so much dialogue between, or so much interaction between Harau and the other members of Steamheart mm-hmm. was to give that moment above the waterfall far more impact. But I, I, I get the feeling like it was 
just as important for the ending thesis for the end of Rao's arc in Steamheart when she makes the notches on the table mm. to establish that she's found a new family. Mm. Yeah, that was one of the first scenes that I, I wrote for Harau to be able to finish with that. Yeah, And I, mean, I thought that's going to be really difficult to express just in audio because the, what, what Abigail's describing here is very visual, but you did a fantastic job. And in a way, I think the arc that Harau has through Tiger's Eye is that one of the the kind of hoops that she has to pass through is this sense of having nothing left to lose. Mm. And although, obviously, by the end of Tiger's Eye, she is well on her way to moving past that and moving away from that, as she becomes more integrated with the Steamheart team, she has more and more and more to lose. And Mm. that gives a... A kind of a, a weight to the choices that she makes and the I okay there's a point where she's almost having to make a decision between do I stick with these people who I love and I care about and am connected with or do I stay here in the forest and go back to being a creature of the of the of nature. That's her meeting with the goddess. Exactly. Mm. And oh. that oh. <laughs> that kind of decision is one that I or not decision, that dilemma, shall we say, is one that I felt quite a lot of identification with in terms mm. of you have this thing, this lifestyle, this job, this relationship, this setup, whatever. And I'm not quite sure how it happened. I don't know how it came about. I didn't make a conscious choice to have this thing and then pursue it. So it's almost like having that moment where you've already won the race and you're having to decide whether you wanted to be in that race in the first place. It's a really Mm. weird headspace to be in. Because obviously the, the, the decision that Hrau makes to go back to the team and back to the family, I think... It's all about is, the family. <laughs> was, was kind of an inevitable The fast and the furious. <laughs> oh, very nice, very nice. Um, I don't think there was really any doubt that she would choose to stay. You know, there was no point at which I thought, yeah, she might legitimately decide to stay with Seth. I didn't think that was going to happen. To me, there was doubt in her mind. Which is enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mm. But just the fact that that was a choice that she had to make, um, or at least a choice that she had to recognise, was one that felt very real to me and very, uh, very powerful. And that made her coming back, and particularly the manner in which she comes back and the importance of her coming back at that moment, that much more powerful. Mm. not because there was necessarily a question mark over it and that she might not come back and be able to save them, but the the fact that it was now a conscious choice on her behalf rather than just a fate has thrown me in with these people and therefore I suppose I'll bat a few enemies off for them. I had listened to about three quarters of the old interview and stopped at some point during Sharon's analysis of Frau's choice. By now, you'll have heard us talk about it ourselves as you've been following along, and you may remember that we struggled with this moment about how much of a choice it was for Hrau, as she claimed. 
My original plan was to listen to these old interviews in part to see if they would include good talking points for us to bring up during our own show. But in the end, I decided to let it be. Obviously, Alex and Sharon wanted us to come up with our own ideas. And if I let Sharon's ideas shape ours, would they be as original? Never mind that this is clearly a very personally affecting moment for Sharon, and therefore we ourselves would not be able to react to it in the same way. We ended up coming to much the same conclusion as Alex intended. Regardless of how much it affected Rao, it didn't change the fact that the impulse was briefly there. I ultimately wanted Sharon's words to stand alone, spoken by her, relating this personal reflection, rather than trying to paraphrase it and then in any way analyze or critique it. After all, so much of our own reactions to New Century are also shaped by our own filters, our own experiences, our own trauma. But to go back to the original question of who did you want to get together most in Steamheart, uh, I wanted to see what would happen when Abigail and Truth hung out and that Truth had stuff she needed to get done and Abigail would get in the way of that. Everything like the, the fact that Truth clashed with her father and even with her mother and, and sister, just she's kind of a control freak, much like Thomas was. And Abigail has this sense where she's, she's like, you know, I could do exactly what you're asking me to do. But I'd like to fuck with you at this point. <laughs> Not because she wants to see the chaos, but she's kind of like, it, she spars with everyone. Mm. Just like, she's like, okay, so I'm not going to actually hit you. That would be terrible of me. But what if I just kind of dug my heels in? And you know, mm. ultimately, you've got these two incredibly strong-willed women clashing. That whole thing about, you know, women must be strong uh, as characters and don't necessarily have to be physically strong you like she could deck truth easily like in half a second she managed to hold her own against her in what i hoped was a relatively realistic uh um fight but the meeting of the two of them that's a meeting of the wills yeah exactly mm. that was it's it's about these uh, two women and uh, and and abigail's very much about personal freedoms and, you know, she's able to sort of fight on the side that's like, right, we're going to sort of bring everyone together. But she's also, okay, yeah, but if we crack down too hard, people won't be able to breathe. So mm-hmm. there's, there's very much a Malcolm Reynolds uh, side of her there. I was just thinking that. In fact, the, the interactions between them did kind of make me think of certain interactions between Mal and Simon uh, Inara Inara not the ones you're thinking of but just (laughs) in the sense of her saying well if you're going to hang out in this society this is what you have to do and how you have to behave and his response being how about no (laughs) they would make quite a hot couple actually if if Truth was the least bit not totally straight (laughs) which she is but yeah, no. The original, I think I must have mentioned on at least one of the previous shows there is a lot of Simon in James. So that clashing between Simon and Mal is um, Abigail and James. There's a couple of meetups that I've entertained the idea will happen in the future, and I can't tell you if they will happen because I can't tell you if any one of these characters will be alive tomorrow. But uh, I want to see Butler and the Nag. <laughs> 
Mm. Oh God, yes. I, I, mean, I want to see Butler's illusions so about unicorns be shattered and have the nag actually feel a little bit sorry that he did that. Hang on, do you mean Butler or do you mean Jeremy? No, Butler loves unicorns, okay. remember? Yes. That's right, yes. Yeah. But then Butler, after hearing the... And I love the detail, um, and this, uh, it relates to a question later, but for now, I love the detail in that added section where he hears all about that encounter that a family had with the nag. Mm. And he says like, this completely like shatters everything I thought I knew about unicorns. <laughs> I kind of want to meet him even more now. And yeah. <laughs> that was me teasing everyone and saying, you really want this. I really want this. I will see if I can make it happen. He's mm. Butler's in a dark place right now. I don't know if yeah. he'll be able to get out of it and I can't promise anything, but it is something I wish would happen. Of course, those who have read through phase two, have some inkling of the shape of what Butler is like now. Without spoiling, the kind of interaction they would have post-Steamheart is likely very different to one they would have had pre-Steamheart. And no, I won't tell you if they've had one. Read the books. You'll be glad you did. And also, I want Gwen to meet... Harau, because she loves cats so much. <gasps> I think Theo oh, yeah. voiced that way back when we were doing the Princess Thieves episodes. And I want uh, Gwen to meet Abigail, because even the slightest excuse for them to uh, have a punch-up, I mean, I'll, I'll just let it happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to picture one of those images where they've both decked each other in the face like at the same time mm-hmm. it just feels right <laughs> at the moment though uh if you know she's at her current power levels gwen would have to put her sword down because oh yeah and it would pancake direction. abigail against a wall yes indeed hey there's a thought only alex can answer this and maybe he doesn't remember But if you'll recall from earlier, one of the things that he mentioned is that Indy tends to be very quiet, but he does shift around a lot to be comfortable, and will sit in the office with Alex and Sharon when they record at times. I'm wondering if some of the repeated creaking sounds, like the one just now, is a secret Indy cameo? Alex, maybe you can shed some light? Okay, I I think we're going to leave it off now. You guys have got... You've gotten about halfway through the questions. I think that this is propitious for another show. Do you think we can meet again? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, anyone want to ask one more fun question before we go? (laughs) As you can tell by the length of the remaining runtime, no. We don't manage to keep it to only one question, or even one question apiece. I'm sure I had something in my head at one point, but uh, I've just been sort of losing myself in the experience. So <laughs> if, if we if we circle back around to it, maybe it'll pop back in my head. But for now, this is this is this has been excellent. Thank you. It really has, and I do have one last question. Okay. Was the fight between Abigail and Harrell the "Do you want me to put the hammer down?" moment? <laughs> 
Uh, okay, right. So who would win in a fight between Thor and Iron Man? Probably Thor. Which one's more powerful, Captain America's shield or Mjolnir? Turns out it's Captain America's shield. Who could win genuinely in a fight between Abigail and Harau? Harau, easily. Harau is sitting on millions of years of instinct and ability to just kill really quickly and efficiently. Abigail actively doesn't want to kill anybody. So if it was to the death, Harau in seconds. The thing that sort of complicates that fight is neither of them wants to be an asshole. Uh, Mm -hmm. Neither of them wants to completely embarrass the other. And Haral knows she could absolutely lay uh, Abigail out in seconds. Uh, and the point when Abigail like, gets one over on her a couple of times and acts like she's about to be beaten and then comes back with a flurry, that's enough to enrage Haral and make her rock bottom Abigail. As I said about Abigail wanted to spar with everyone, rather than engaging in a battle of wills where she just fucks with Haral verbally and, and, and tries to her, kind of, I suppose, harass her, I think even Abigail sensed that that would be a little unseemly. Mm. So she decided after uh, seeing her fight, we could probably have a sparring match. And that is in itself a conversation. This is mm. something uh, uh, Yen Wu Ping said about um, some of the, uh, the the best Kung Fu fights in, in films. They aren't really a fight. They're a conversation. And that was Rao talking with Abigail and they were sizing each other up and working out the kind of moral character of each other. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that a, a, a meeting of Abigail's and Harau's wills, I feel like to a certain extent you'd need, I know that the game didn't hit on all cylinders for you, but uh, in Mass Effect Andromeda, there was a whole conversation between the Pathfinder Liam and one of the the new aliens they met, Jal, where they had a moment where they just tried to figure out about each other's species and what would actually be an insult or a compliment in, nice. in comparison to what their own experience was. It's such a shame uh, the mechanics of that game were so dismal because I would really have liked to have seen that conversation. Mm. <sighs> I don't know if Alex ever got around to looking at the scene, so I'm including it here as well as a link in the show notes. To properly set the stage... The protagonist just walked in on her two crewmates in their skivvies. Or in Jal's case, even less. Liam, I signed off on that project. That's great, Pathfinder. Jal and Maldorov, we got our gear. Costa, Ryder. Is this show for my benefit? Because I'm benefiting. <laughs> just convenience, swapping armor. You ready to go? Go. Right. The pattern on your pauldron? Family honorific. Can I wear the poncho? It's a rothshin. And no. Why? Is it religious? Wait, what? It's personal. You're not allowed. Because of status or species? Maybe it's both. Mm, do all humans look alike? Some of you sound alike. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know how this goes. Someone's getting offended and someone else punched. That's why we're doing it here? It's an armor swap for answers. Stuff the diplomats, don't ask. My turn was earlier. Nexus info packets leave a lot out. I am sorry. Was this not sanctioned? You weaseling Adi. Nevertheless, Ryder? You better have a good reason for this. I do, and we were clear. 
jaw was in from the start. Did I say put the shirt on? <laughs> oh, we were shit-talking. Except we couldn't. We didn't know enough about each other to dig in. If we don't know what's insulting or awful, we might accidentally trip on it. it makes talking dangerous. So now we know. And maybe that's enough for a couple of hotheads not to make a mess out there. Unless we want to. Good enough reason? Okay, I kind of get the intent. No harm, no foul. <laughs> if Jar was offended, I'd be on the floor. I'll take that kind of honest any day. We have a lot to learn as part of what our team is for. <laughs> Better now than when people's lives are on the line. It might be interesting to go back after all this time and do a retrospective on Andromeda for Beyond the Wind Door. But only if Toby is up for it. Simply put, it would be even more of a time investment than God of War Ragnarok is. I was also uh, trying to think of what who would actually win in a fight between Abigail and Miguel. But again, it comes down to just a fight or something to the death because so much of what Miguel's trained to do is just to end the fight really, really quickly and fatally. Mm. He doesn't necessarily fight, he eliminates. Yeah, he's about evasion. There's like mm. He can't really get hit. Um, mm. Glass cannon. There was something dark about taking him down to where he ended up in uh, Steamheart. I knew mm. that to be able to survive, he'd have to lose Horao and then have to pull himself together. And like he, he had to go from, I am not a cat to, I am a cat. I can do this. And, you know, I, be I I've, I've done the training. I'm the only one who can. And, mm -hmm. uh, what he ended up doing, it also required him to go back to that place after he had killed, which wrecked him in Tiger's Eye, and just mm. do it again and again and again, and to somehow be able to not feel it and get through it. There's a moral line he was just circumventing for that, uh, because he couldn't risk not at that stage. It, mm. it became a case of, I have built these Green Hollow folks up to be the most detestable people on the planet. So the average person would have no qualms with uh, seeing them taken out and wouldn't really suggest a non-violent way of dealing with them. But at the same time, I needed to make that whole section of what Miguel does, what Butler does feel cold and worrisome rather than mm. glorious fun battle. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> So, yeah, that's a fun note to end on. Someone else need another fun one quick. Oh, dude, yeah. Who do you ship the nag with? Who do I ship the nag with? The nag ships with everyone. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, like, he, he and Merlane are this old married couple aren't they mm. it's just this, mm. this like they yeah, you've talked about that they they fight all the time but they it, it never really gets bitter between them they enjoy clashing and they mm. enjoy taking pot shots at each other and it feels like if you removed one of them the other would be incredibly lonely uh mm. so uh, who do i ship him with uh merlane every time but um if he could I suppose assume a human form. Let's just say. Uh, then, <laughs> I don't know. I'd like. I think he'd probably try with Abigail, but then, like somewhere, uh, uh, you know, in the middle, he'd just end up saying something so hurtful, and she'd go, "You're an asshole," and walk away. <laughs> I think if he actually was trying to get someone into bed, even if it was a bed of hay, uh, he would actually end up uh, not doing too fantastically. 
<laughs> so, like, that part of his charm is his equine form. Mm. But I think even in human form, I think he'd probably stick with Mulane. It, it's like, um, to go back to Discworld again, it's like when Greedo turns into a human. Grebo. Greedo is the one who goes, what was it? McClunky. 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 Okay. To go back to Discworld, it's like when Grebo yes. takes human form, he kind of still sticks around with Nanny because she knows where he likes to be scratched and how soft he likes his bed. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like never that. interpreted it like that. No, this no, no. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I think even regardless of, of what their respective physical expressions are, they are so used to each other in terms yeah. of character and personality. Put it like this. Whatever ship I could come up with for fun would not be as long-lasting as he and Merlane. Mm. They've gone for quite a while. All right, here's here. I did think of a fun one actually. Okay, uh, a, one, as actually. as established, Raven is very much he's a loner by choice who who believes he's uh, viewing the end of uh, humanity. Oh God, I'm going to dark place again. But no, the question <laughs> is, do you think that he'd ever get to a place? we might actually see him take on a quote-unquote filthy assistant. <laughs> it would need somebody of, uh, of great patience and somebody who respected his work and could put up with his behavior. I wouldn't want... I mean, obviously, we're, we're talking about Transmetropolitan here and he's there's so much spider in the beginning of Raven, but uh, yeah. Raven's become something of his own like there's there's times when i feel like he's being played by a, a native american jk simmons in my head huh but, um uh, oh i hear that that i hear that of, uh, there is a force at work inside my body which i must unlock will you teach me of course i will you're the child of the prophecy really no <sighs> prophecy <sighs> you jackass that exchange was from the trailer I did for Steamheart, just to establish the tone and kind of the basic outline and drive of the story, before I wrote the book itself. And some of those bits of the trailer just made their way into the final book because they just worked. And rather than rephrasing them and having people react them in a way that might have worked less well, I just kept the bits from the trailer. I suppose I've sort of woven in a bit of uh, the, the irascible J. Jonah Jameson, but if he had an ethical backbone, because I never get to see that. I uh, really mm. ever get to see uh, Jonah being a, a prick. Um, would he take on a filthy assistant? Yes, absolutely. But I, I would probably want to vary it up a bit so that I'm not just replicating Transmetropolitan. I could see Abigail tagging along with him for a little while to try and get some more signatures. Abigail and he have not had their scene properly yet. They had a little bit of a chat um, uh, after the party. But uh, yeah, there's they've got one coming up. Mm. There's a lot of depth to a Raven that he doesn't allow people to see. I'll say that. And, uh, and yeah, he doesn't tend to allow people to, to tag in because he basically losing Nadine was very painful for him and mm. he you know, honestly wouldn't ever really want to care about somebody and work with somebody that closely and live with somebody that closely that he has the opportunity to lose again so it would probably be someone who also kind of doesn't necessarily want to get close with someone if it was like he could be close with someone who they didn't have to be close with one another if that makes sense it's that they're quite comfortable being two individuals and that, but yeah. I'd be interested in seeing what he and Merlane 
would be like because the interesting thing was that Raven in the bright ones that I mentioned before is in that as well and is much more of the Gandalf style sage. I made him much more of a wreck as uh, as I went along and, and separated the sage out into multiple different sages. So effectively, if he meets a better version of himself, uh, you know, as he said, I'm shit at being a shaman. If he meets someone who is actually good at that, and I don't think he has yet. Oh, God, Merlane and the Silent One and Raven. Oh. <laughs> I think, honestly, if he and the Silent One might get on quite well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That kind of... Being together and comfortably sharing a silence. The other uh, pairing I could see working. You will have well. to comfortably share a silence with me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the other one uh, I think would be him and Mortimer, because I think Mortimer mm. would resist the we're working together and therefore we have to be close. Oh, no, we don't. <laughs> okay, that is actually a pairing now that you mention it. Just having them stuck together somewhere in the wilderness mm. and having to depend Absolutely. on each other. That's electric. Yeah. I'll see if I can make that happen somehow. Because Mortimer be- needs someone to bring out different aspects of mm. her. Absolutely. And yeah. Raven gives a shit, but he does it in a way that she can't challenge. Mm. Somebody, I think, asked, was Mortimer really trying to seduce Robin or was she just trying to spin him a yarn? to disrupt his relationship with Gwen. That was me, actually. I don't think I ever answered that one, did I? Eh. Okay. um, Well, you put it to everybody else. Right. Okay. I never answered it myself. As far as I'm concerned, Mortimer has convinced herself that she's a moral vacuum and that everyone's just as bad as she is. They're just better at faking at being a goody two-shoes. As far as she's concerned, who could possibly want to live a life as boring as that? until she's confronted with someone who really does give a shit and yet has a sense of humor. Someone who's been able to balance doing good things for other people with having a good time, with being sexually active, with being a scoundrel. And it challenged her on the inside because she was thinking, okay, so there's no fucking way this is genuine, right? So I think she kind of did try to seduce him to see if she could bring him around to admitting that it was all an act. (laughs) And then... Her turn at the end of The Princess Thieves stems from seeing Gwendolyn grow up and become a decent queen and, and actually did start to get a, a more of a handle on things and, and that Robin really was everything he said he was. And whatever she told herself, she felt like shit after everyone was captured and everything fell apart. She didn't expect to find a conscience along the way. Yeah, mm. And yeah, the, the, the curious thing about it, I love the fact that she confronts Oberon and kind of in this masochistic way, is like, come on. Oberon finally looked up at her, but all she saw in those eyes was sadness and regret. Oh, come on, you great lunk. I'm the one who sold Robin down the river, profiteering from his capture. Surely you want to strike me dead on the spot. Come on, I can take it. No? Nobody here appreciates the dubious merits of a good strangling? But one of the things about Mortimer that I, I always found the most intriguing is the fact that she she always has to be right, but she achieves it by kind of stepping away from the timeline before she finds out she's wrong. Yeah. She's very good at being alone, same as Raven. Mm, absolutely. So I, I think if we could kind of engineer some kind of situation where maybe she... <coughs> in fact, yep, that's it. She comes to America to try and find her brother and employs Raven to help. Mm. I'm not mm. some fucking private eye. Well, well okay, then he's travelling around anyway now. and she tags along. 
There is serious world-changing shit at stake right now. <laughs> I'm not looking for your brother. Besides which, he's in Canada. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for telling me that before I paid you. <laughs> no, um, it needs to be something where they are both stuck together. He's trying to do something for the greater good. She's trying to do something for uh, for personal gain. And they have to help each other for that particular scenario. But, I mean, that would make a book, frankly. Yeah. Okay. Keep that one in your back pocket in case you need to do something with a bit more levity. I will. (laughs) It'd be weird, though, because, like, she's... There's a bit of an age gap between them, but not much more than between James and Rebecca. Or, indeed, the real-life Annie and Butler. And, honestly, once you get past 40, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. You just want the companionship. And while she'd tase you for even mentioning it, Mortimer's past 40. It's not who I am under this mask. But who I am when I'm in the mask when... Oh, my legs! My legs! Oh, the back, the back as well! I can sense that you are going to be a peculiar nuisance to me tonight. I'm nobody's filthy fucking assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Except possibly my own. (laughs) (laughs) On that bombshell, I think we're going to leave it for now, but uh, there's more questions on this sheet that I'm looking at right now, and we'll be back with a a second go-round. Gentlemen, if you'd like to uh, add some more to this list in the meantime, by all means do. Thank you very, very much uh, to uh, Greg Downing. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. (laughs) And thank you very, very much to Toby Jungius. No problem. It's always a pleasure. And is there any uh, place you'd want to send people towards uh, your work, your stuff? Uh, Greg, you first. Well, Toby, you're the one that actually has an amazing array of write-ups of New Century (laughs) in general. There is that. People might want to know. I I will eventually... (laughs) start writing again i all of this has been enormous for my own creative spark unfortunately anything i could direct people to now has disappeared into the uh the vortex of the internet but uh who knows someday four years later we've passed five thousand total downloads of 167 episodes if you haven't listened to all of them you've got plenty of content to catch up on Oh, watch this space. Yeah, it was a pleasure working with you, Greg, on these questions as well. Thank you for being patient with me on that. Oh, to- no, absolutely, Toby. No problem mm. at all. And uh, as Greg very kindly said, I do have a blog which has been variable in the release schedule of the write-ups of each episode, but they started off as a very quick, oh, uh, I'll do a 500-word thing for each episode, and then... damn you alex each episode had so much to talk about and then it expanded so yes at the moment i've taken a bit of a break from twitter and just sort of having a presence online but i am slowly dipping my uh yes i am slowly dipping my toe back into the water's spotlight whichever metaphor you prefer and i will be back to writing again very soon Four years later, Toby has taken up a great deal more projects above and beyond our work together. He's resurrected his Tumblr page a bit, although I don't know how much new content he's posted there. I just know that there is stuff above and beyond promotion of New Century. He's been on several episodes of School of Movies, as have I, as well as finally finished his stop-motion thesis. Mostly. 
He's got changes to make. The only important thing is, they gave him the degree in advance, so I can officially call him Doctor. Okay, folks. Uh, we will be back uh, next time with a whole bunch more questions, and uh, this has been great fun. It's a good Certainly format. Has. I like it. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, do we, how do we schools out? How, how do we, how do we, how do we, we finish this <laughs> We Um, just did. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) See you around the multiverse. That's a good one, actually. Uh, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And see you around around the the multiverse. multiverse. There we go. Sharon's just said she always thought that Sound of Like You Got a Pair refers to ears. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Does that sound like something that Gunnery Sergeant would say? Like, oh, I wouldn't want to say anything too toxic! I'm gonna... <laughs> that, oh, I, I, really... I don't want to be that guy! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really want to hear a uh, like, drill sergeant who actually is very conscientious, a bit like that the one in Forrest Gump who oh. is actually very encouraging of Forrest when he like it's like you must be a goddamn genius yeah I, I think he's being slightly sarcastic but at the same time he like compared with Gunnery Sergeant Hartman he's peaches and fucking cream <laughs> I didn't know that came from Full Metal Jacket so now that we know where it comes from yeah it's it's obviously a a genital reference <laughs> okay yeah. well, only two things come out of Texas astronauts and Really, really good Mexican food. Ribeye steak! (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I might actually create like a gunnery sergeant Hartman who sounds really aggressive but is actually very supportive. Yeah. That sounds cool. I'd like that. You um, you can always come to me if you need emotional support. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my fucking door is always open. (laughs) (laughs) That was a nice warm up. He's available on the henchman hotline. I'm gonna... And since I mentioned it earlier, here's that Steamheart trailer for you. Remember, this was put together way before I started writing and way before we started recording Steamheart. It's 1873. And the Earth isn't doing so well. It's been ten years since the portals opened and the Wendigo first prowled among us. Their infectious bite left the human race in tatters. Over here in Washington, we're trying our best to bring things back together. It hasn't been easy. But today, we met some folks who just might be able to help. Two assassins. Climb aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This here ginormous steam-operated land vehicle you see before you is going to be a new home for all of us for the next half year. A one-eyed doctor and a crazy woman who sees ghosts. I hate confined spaces. She's claustrophobic. That too. A drug-addled journalist. Mother of God, man. We can't stop here. A monster zoologist. So where exactly did the mermaid bite you? Ouch. And our own dear sweet daughter. All right, buckle up. Uh, We don't want to get stranded out in the wild, so can you please try not to break anything back there? Oh, this is going to be splendid. And that's who you're sending to save the world. Can you suggest anybody better suited to the job? Under the circumstances and in the short amount of time we have, it'll do. There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You are the child of the prophecy. Really? No! Prophecy. 
<laughs> you jackass. This team is all wrong. America doesn't want us. Girl, you forgot that bad things happen to them who come trespassing. And you forgot about our ten-foot-tall purple tiger. Oh, my stars and goddess, did you boys pick the wrong fight. Everybody, hold on real hard to the person next to you. This journey is about something more than just saving the world. This is about reminding the world why it's worth saving in the first place. And how were we ever supposed to accomplish that? I've never known friends like you before. If I was gonna build a family, these would be the components I'd need. When people are down, when they're scared and divided, when they want to curl up and die because things have gotten so bad, how the hell else are we gonna pick them back up again? We give them heroes. Steamheart. We found something out there. Or, more specifically, it found us. You were warned not to venture into these lands. Wait, hold on. I can explain. No, I can't. Run! Hell of a thing. Returning to where we began. Next time, you'll see where we concluded with the Shaws until joining forces officially in 2020. But for now, because I have to end it my way, here's a song from the year we began, 2019. I had to dig a little for this, because a lot of the big hits of that year didn't hit with me. And even some of my favorite artists that put out albums didn't have anything that immediately stuck out. But I did eventually find two songs worth highlighting that you may not have heard. So until next time, this is Pink with Walk Me Home. There's something in the way you roll your eyes Takes me back to a better time When I saw everything is good But now you're the only thing that's good Trying to stand up on my own two feet This conversation ain't coming easily And darling, I know it's getting late So what do you say we leave this place? Walk me home in the dead of night I can't be alone with all that's on my mind So say you'll stay with me There's something in the way I wanna cry That makes me think we'll make it out alive So come on and show me how we're good I think that we could do some good mm-hmm. Walk me home in the dead of night I can't be alone with all that's on my mind mm-hmm. So say you'll stay with me
dead of night Cause I can't be alone with all that's on my mind Say you'll stay with me tonight Cause there is so much wrong going on Walk me home in the dead of night 